podcast one production. Over the course of 10 days in June, pretty much everything in the world of cryptocurrency changed. A new story is unfolding. It's a different story from last year. The technology remains mostly the same, but the world has moved along. Hello, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to Episode 4 of Series 2 of Cryptonomics, a show dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, are transforming our entire world. Along the way, we've learned what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. We've spoken to folks who have built successful businesses using the blockchain, some of whom have created their own successful cryptocurrencies. We've learned how things work, why they work, and when they don't. Now, in Series 1, we covered enough of the basics to help you make your own investment decisions. You now have the tools you need to investigate any cryptocurrency and ask, is it real? Is it wise? Is it a good investment? You've learned the questions you need to ask and the sorts of answers you'll want to receive. But cryptocurrencies are only the tip of the iceberg. The whole field of blockchain is just over a decade old, and it's already working its way into the core of some very established businesses, including banking. And it's being used as the foundation for some entirely new ones. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, will be changed by this new technology. And that's why we've called this series Cryptonomics. When you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall, and now recently the rise in the price of Bitcoin, you can see that there's another wave. It's a tsunami of change rolling over banks, retailers, even central banks. Now, there's a lot of hype surrounding cryptocurrencies. Some of that hype is justified. It's a new way of doing business. And it's already forcing institutions as fundamental as central banks to make way for it. In a moment, we'll be joined by our wise and well-read panelists discussing the incredible series of events that unfolded in June, events that we saw coming into focus with consequences no one predicted. It's a great pleasure to welcome again Mark Jeffrey to Cryptonomics. Mark is the patron saint of this podcast. Our episode on cryptocurrencies on the next billion seconds was the most downloaded episode of that series, and that episode inspired this series. Welcome, Mark. Mr. Pesci, thank you for having me back. And as patron saint, I hereby bless this episode. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Joining Mark is the other partner in this roundtable, Rob Tursick, the award-winning author of Vaporized, a book that explains why and how all that is solid is melting into software, and that includes money. Welcome, Rob. Thank you. It's great to be back. All right. So let's just get to it. There's this wonderful quote that is attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. First, they ignore you. Then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. And although this quote is attributed to Gandhi, it is in fact not Gandhi's. Gandhi never said it. It's one of those internet things. But let's just take it for what it is. It's a guide to what's happened over the last three of our chats on cryptonomics. 
At Christmas time, when we did our special episode, Rob just sort of laughed at this idea of a Facebook cryptocurrency. And then on the next episode, he very carefully walked it back. He's like, no, actually, this may be a really interesting idea. And I think this is when we were all having our, my goodness, moment around this. And he said, let's take this seriously. And now we are well, well into this. So, gentlemen, what do you think of Libra? What is it? What does it mean? What is it going to do? Well, when it comes to moving fast and breaking things, I guess democracy wasn't sufficient, and now we're going to also try to break the global <laughs> financial system. Yeah, I, I, I guess I have a different take on it. Uh, in my view, Libra is, is the AOL moment for cryptocurrency, potentially. And by that I mean uh, when the internet was young and new, AOL provided the first on-ramp for most people to discover the internet, discover email, discover that universe. And uh, Facebook, with their 2 billion users and their stablecoin and a way for fiat to move in and out of that stablecoin, has the rudiments, the building blocks for the average person to get into crypto for the very first time. It could be spectacularly huge. Let's not forget how the AOL story ended, though. Not well for AOL. No, not at all. <laughs> well, that could be a good thing. That means Facebook won't control the future of crypto, which I, you know, I actually think is a good thing. Uh, let's break this down a little bit because, I mean, I, 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 I think I agree with both of you. I, Rob, it is definitely moving fast. It is definitely going to break things. I think we have to be very concerned about whether it breaks the financial system. And, and we'll, I, I want to sort of take that apart a little bit to look at it. But at the same time, you have to sort of admire the audacity of just basically putting a white paper out there, saying we have this association, we're going to do all of these things. And the more that you look at it, you know, I was even looking at the news before we went into studio today, and none of the 28 partners who were the launch partners of Libra, these very large companies, including Visa and Mass, MasterCard and Uber and all these other companies have done anything but sign kind of a very vague letter of agreement saying, yeah, maybe we're going to work together. There is no formal association yet. Is there some chance that this is all going to evaporate before it even gets real? I think there is. I think you can certainly count on some members of Congress and some senators in the United States uh, working with the intention to basically slow walk this thing to a quiet doom. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think <laughs> right after it was announced, all of us in the crypto space cheered because we were like, you know, look, there's no version of the future that doesn't include crypto. And very quickly that turned to, oh, my God, maybe this will never launch. That said... My personal opinion is that Facebook is very, very serious about this. They did do it in a crypto way. They wrote a white paper. They set up a uh, company in Switzerland. That's a crypto way of doing things. I was very impressed, and the people they brought on board were very impressive. Uh, I think all of us looked at it and went, wow, this is way better than we would have guessed Facebook would have done this. They seem very serious. I don't think they're going to back down. They may go slower, but I don't think it's dead. Rob? One of the arguments that's been floated around the slow walk, because I think there is a lot of sense that there is a lot of political power, particularly in Washington, that wants to slow walk this. Some of that being the pushback against Facebook being so powerful. Some of that's around the unknowns that are involved in creating an entirely new global currency and rolling it out and going, yeah, let's just see what happens, which is kind of what's going on here. Do we also have to worry that 
and, and, and I got a sense that this was happening, that Facebook was basically saying, look, if we don't do this, the Chinese will or someone else will, and you will lose the ability to have a hand in a global currency. I think that's very clear. I think that the Facebook has framed this very artfully. First of all, let's note that they're uh, setting up Libra in Switzerland, and they sent a very clear signal to U.S. Congress. You guys have got to, have got to get your financial regulatory act together. Uh, the, you know, the, they're located in Switzerland because the Swiss did the hard work of figuring out a regulatory regime that legitimizes d- digital currencies of all sorts, not just cryptocurrency. That's very powerful positioning um, because essentially, in my view, what Facebook's saying is we're doing this. We're launching this next year in the beginning, in the first half of 2020. We're going to make it possible for Facebook employees to take their salary in Libra. That'll be available to them. And then they're also saying, kind of out of the other side of their mouth, but we very much would like to work with you. We very much would like to include the U.S. dollar in some way in that in that basket of currencies that this stable coin is pegged to. And to me, that sounds an awful lot like when the mafia guy walks into your pizza parlor and says, nice pizza joint you've got here. It sure would be a shame if somebody came and messed up your global reserve currency, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going I'm to... Rob's right. I'm not going to discount what he just said. However... There was. I watched the congressional hearings. I didn't just read about them. I actually watched the live feed on both both days, uh, on on Libra, and one one of the things in the Switzerland thing came up, and the reaction of uh, the congressional members was, "How dare you set up a corporation outside America?" Right? It was kind of offensive. They were like offended <laughs> that Facebook was doing this. As someone who has done has actually gone through the process of creating a token and a coin, it is impractical to do it in the United States. It's actually nearly impossible. Right. It's because of a whole bunch of laws that are in conflict with one another. Yeah. When you do when you do a token, it is at once considered possibly a security, a commodity. Uh, it's considered money, so it's under FinCEN. Uh, there's like four or five different uh, potential classifications of it, and you have to obey all of them. And every six months, they they, they change their, their ruling. Right. They, you know, the chairman of the of the reserve funds starts to change his ruling on what it is, whether it's a cryptocurrency as a security or whether it's a commodity. This is ridiculous. Domiciling so, so in Switzerland is a practical decision. That's the, that's the point I want to make. Let me roll this out to this other crash course that I've had around regulation of financial instruments, because what you're pointing at, when the FATF came down with the regulations around cryptocurrencies, they actually stated quite explicitly, if something that's in a virtual asset is covered by another set of laws. So in other words, if you take a state currency and make a digital dollar or whatever, you don't have to apply the new regulations because the old regulations apply. And so they're trying to make sure they don't over-regulate currencies. What you're saying is the U.S. almost by accident has over-regulated. There's multiple conflicting rules for these things. Yeah, they're trying to, they're, there's a little bit of jockeying over who has jurisdiction over this new asset class. Correct. <sighs> All right. Okay, so so and what that's done have- is it's, it's driven innovation offshore. So let's be really clear what's going yeah. on. Innovation is happening outside the United States, and I think what this entire uh, testimony and you know the hearings show is that the U.S. Congress is currently inept. They're gridlocked. They're unable to pass meaningful legislation. We haven't had real leadership from Washington in quite some time. And so nothing's getting done. Uh, the world, however, hasn't stopped. The world's continuing to move forward. And innovation does occur. It's just driving it right offshore. It's a, the uncertainty has created this cloud over it. You know, it's a little bit like, um, this is not the greatest analogy, but forgive me, folks. It's like legalized cannabis operations in some states in the United States. You're locked out of the banking system. 
So you right. could be right. complying with state law, but you can't use the banking system because the banks have to comply with federal law. Right. Um, so as a result, you have people driving vans full of cash around trying to find the bank. Some states are talking about opening up their own like state bank yeah. in order to deal with this uh, this new fall this new windfall of cash. And um, if you want to comply, you're saying basically regulate me. Please, I want to comply. And actually, that's what David Marcus said, right? We want to comply. Please, we want to craft the regulation with you. We're here. You know, we're raising our hand. And other people aren't going to be so forthcoming. Other people are going to go ahead and innovate wherever they can without your permission. And they're going to do it without your dollar being part of, their, uh, be part of the you know, basket of currencies. Notice, however, this is, here's a fascinating nuance. Facebook is asking the government to craft the regulation with them. That, they openly stated that. We, we're basically inviting you, federal government, to co-create the regulations here. Now, on the one hand, that's kind of cool and progressive. But on the other hand, it's like, <laughs> wait, a private corporation is coming to the government saying, with, a, with you or without you, we are going to launch this currency next year. And we're giving you one opportunity to, to come with us and craft the regulation. Otherwise, we're going to just launch our boat next year without you. One other thing I want to add to what Rob said. So the exchanges over the past month or so, Bittrex, uh, Poloniex, Binance, have started geofencing the United States and disallowing all kinds of tokens from trading. They're just, we will not allow it. The, the United States is now being geofenced as a kooky country with, it, with respect to cryptocurrency, and only the United States. So it's, it's already providing less opportunities for average citizens to invest in crypto. They just can't do it. And... Um, you know, Poloniex just announced they're moving offshore. They're leaving the United States because of this situation. As an Australian, I'm going to take a slightly, you know, with an American accent, a slightly broader point of view here. We're seeing the U.S. maybe not being able to innovate, but I, I, one of the things that I thought was singular about the Libra moment is that it wasn't just about the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government not being able to innovate. It was all central bankers everywhere. And we have seen multiple reports about these state coins, these Fed coins, whatever you want to call them, digital dollars being done. IBM was working with the Federal Reserve. We know the Monetary Authority of Singapore was working on one. We've heard that the Chinese Central Bank was working on one. We know that the Reichsbank in Sweden is definitely working on one. We heard the Canadians were working on them. None of these coins have been released in any meaningful form. The only coins we have are some crazy coins out of Venezuela and I think one out of Ecuador and I I believe the Iranians are now cooking one up because they're trying to figure out how access the banking system, but we don't have any of the the FATF members doing their own digital currencies. And all of a sudden, there's a new digital currency, and they all have to have some reaction to it. So is it that we're just seeing that there's been this deadlock and stasis in America, or has it really highlighted a much bigger stasis in the monetary system that suddenly got unjammed? Yes. Yeah, so part of this has to do with sanctions, right? So um, what can a government do to push around another another sovereign nation? Um, you know, certainly there's the military option, which America hasn't hesitated to use in the last 10, 15 more or more years. We, we use that with a great deal of freedom. However, short of that, um, you have to rely on sanctions. And sanctions mean really exiling an economy from the banking system, basically barring your participation in that banking system. Um one could make a case 
the United States has politicized this, that we're actually using the banking system as an arm of foreign policy to strong-arm countries into complying with the rules as we see them. And it should come as no surprise that certain governments are getting fed up with this and they're seeking a way to create their own SWIFT system uh, to bypass all that regulation. Bear in mind, all those SWIFT transactions have to go through U.S. banks. There's 10 U.S. banks that govern them. Yeah, I think there's that dynamic, and I think there's another dynamic, which is that you know millennials and the unbanked want assets that they control fully on their phone. They want their stuff in their control completely. You know, we're, a lot of people are just fed up with banks and the fact that they can, you know, they can put holds on your accounts and do all kinds of things to you. Know, the next generation of humans on this earth don't want that system. So I think there's, you know, they've gotten used to their phones. They've gotten used to digital assets and games, video games on their phones have trained them that they own their own stuff and they have the convenience of it being digital. And they want that freedom without having some guy or some organization in the middle that can say no to them or take it away from them. Now, the, the opening, the preamble almost of the Libra white paper has some very high sentiments around global financial inclusion and global financial enablement and closing the gap between the rich and the poor. And this is something that's very near and dear to my heart because I've been working on different aspects of this for almost a decade now. And it was weird to see Facebook putting it in these terms do we think that their intentions are around financial engagement with the say billion unbanked users of facebook versus its billion banked users or is it really about making facebook richer and more important and getting all of that analytic data or is it very hard to sort of separate these it's definitely about making facebook richer i mean i don't think there's any question about that i think this is possibly the biggest thing they've ever done and i think they understand that um but and but i do think that at this stage of the game um that's more PR than actual intent in terms of financial inclusion. And bear in mind, Zuckerberg is a fellow who said that Facebook shouldn't be thought of as a corporation. They, they should be thought of more as a government and that they're actually creating policy. And he said that in the past with regard to communications, but certainly that philosophy seems to inform this. They're actually considering this as a form of policy. They're creating digital currency policy or monetary policy for the digital domain. Because they feel that governments aren't moving fast enough and they want to get on with it. And you're right, Mark. Back to the, your point about young people or millennials or whatever we want to call them today in this, call, in this show. Uh, people who've been conditioned by smartphones and ubiquitous broadband expect to do transactions in digital environments. And you have to pay a kind of toll. There's a friction. And there's also an extra expense on doing those transactions. There should be a digital native currency. This is where Libra makes a heck of a lot of sense, right? A global digital currency. What's scary about it is that it's a currency that's being introduced by not just Facebook, but a rogues gallery of companies that make a big on <laughs> transactions. So I don't trust any of these companies. I mean, you, you don't trust Facebook? Fair enough. But what about Visa and MasterCard? Why should we love these guys and embrace them? Yeah, I want to make one, one last point. The UI that uh, Libra put out, we saw screenshots of, of, of what Libra and the wallets would look like. The UI is spectacular. And spe- this is c- called Calibra, right? Calibra, yeah. the Calibra wallet, yes. And what is spectacular about it is up until now, in order to use crypto, you've had to send it to a, you know, an inscrutable crypto address. You know, I have to ask Rob, you know, what is your, what is your Bitcoin address? And it's some big, long, goofy string. And in Libra, or Calibra, you send to a human face and name. 
You know, like I just I send Rob one Libra. Very simple, very easy. Nobody has cracked that yet because nobody else has a social graph that they can build wallets on top of that has that information already available. And that is a giant leap forward, and that should not be underestimated. But that's so this is really taking Facebook's social graph and activating it economically. So it's really, in a sense, the absolutely logical next step for Facebook, right? I mean, in that sense, even if Facebook hadn't been talking about this for a while, they had to have been thinking about this for a while because once you have a social graph, you have people who want to trade. Right. Exactly. So the idea of digital identity uh, that's decoupled from physical things really is a central element here. And it's the part that's got me the most concerned. So, Mark, a moment ago, you talked about the idea that um, this is all about reaching the 1.7 billion people who are unbanked. Um, And actually, it's worth pointing out that 85% of global transactions are still done in cash. So companies like Visa and MasterCard compete in that 15%, uh, of which, you know, a pretty significant chunk is digital digital transactions. Uh, so part of this is extending that financial, you know, those financial institutions into the unbanked and into those the 85% of cash transactions. And one could make a case, and I'm sure many supporters of this will make the case, that this is about democratizing access to capital or democratizing access to the financial system and so on. But here's what you got to really bear in mind. This is an identity play. There is no question about it. There is a digital identity play here. So every asset in the world, whether it's a person or an organization or a company or a place or an item like a product has an identity. And there's a growing effort underway to create digital identities that can be resolved back to those physical things. But now when you decouple those, you can actually start to do some accelerated stuff. You can move much faster in the digital domain because you're not encumbered by all that physicality. And so you can start to trade, for instance, uh, uh, virtual items much faster and at much greater volume than you can trade real-world assets. Now I want to read one passage that's really relevant here. This is from the Libra Association. This is the document that describes what the Libra Association is about. An additional goal of the association is to develop and promote an open identity standard. We believe that decentralized and portable digital identity is a prerequisite to financial inclusion and competition. Okay, that's very bold. That seems like a very noble undertaking. Oh, we're going to provide identity. And let's point out that almost a billion people globally don't have any government-issued ID. A billion people, right? So that's that's another kind of version of reaching the unbanked and serving the unbanked. But bear in mind, this power to recognize this identity is going to be in the hands of private corporations. And if you violate their terms of service, they can shut down your account. This is actually really a scary proposition. To me, this is a great, much greater concern for me than the actual part, the currency part of this equation. And for someone who spends most of his time trying to stay out of the Facebook ecosystem, that's me, yeah. right? In some sense, I don't have any identity in that ecosystem. That's I not, mean, I, That's not true. So the fact that you're in my yeah. contact list and, and probably Mark yeah. Jeffries as well means that they already have a profile on you, Mark. I'm, I'm ter- terribly sorry to inform you of that. Oh, yeah. No, I know. I know. It's yeah. the dark profile. It's yeah. everything that's outlined by what they don't, what, the, what I haven't explicitly provided. <laughs> but because I haven't gone on bended knee to have that identity, in other words, it's not not, even if they have the identify, they, they don't need to certify it because I haven't joined the network, mm-hmm. right? And so then this is another way when you then take a network graph, a social graph, which has a network effect, which is that more people will join it to create more value and then incentivize it economically, the value of joining the network literally becomes almost a life and death proposition because if you can't trade outside the network or can't trade easily, then you're putting yourself at an enormous economic disadvantage. So does that then mean that as soon as you manage to get a digital currency inside of a 
social network, it becomes a whole other thing of its own, whether it's Libra or something else because of that multiplier effect. Well, I think, look, right now, the situation today is that if, you know, we can disconnect you from the SWIFT system. That's what we do to North Korea and other people that we don't like, right? Um, your bank can disallow you from doing transactions if you are dealing in, in, in cannabis, if you are dealing in porn, if you're dealing in crypto. If they don't like it for some reason, they can just say no. So we, we already have this situation today. This, isn't, this will not be a new thing. What will be new is that it will be in the hands of Facebook as opposed to the banking system. Let me offer another spin on this. Uh, so Sarah Jamie Lewis is a director of open, open Privacy in Canada. She wrote, the worst case scenario is that the most marginalized in society will become further marginalized, locked out of the financial system, unable to pay rent because of a status update, flag them as a sex worker, unable to access health care because Facebook flagged their identity as fraudulent. And she said that would be business as usual for Facebook, flagging accounts and deleting accounts with you know, really no recourse. But then she continued, said, combined with the power to destroy lives wrapped up in the, la- in the language of liberty, consent, and decentralization. To me, this is what gets, is so interesting about this project. This Libra thing can be looked at from so many different lenses. Is it really decentralized? Yes, yeah, sort of-ish, except no, it's incredibly centralized. A hundred companies are going to determine it. And actually, the real driver, the motivator, the engine behind this is actually Facebook itself, right? Those other companies, first of all, there aren't a hundred. There's a, a couple dozen. None of them have participated. None of them are willing to testify. And when congressmen actually called them, they said, you know, actually, we're afraid to comment because we don't know what Facebook's <laughs> going to do to us, right? <laughs> so this thing is wrapped up in the language of decentralization. It's wrapped up in the language of democratization. But it's not entirely clear how they're going to execute on that. And brings us back to their blockchain, right? It's it's not really a cryptocurrency because this is a private permission system. It is not a blockchain. You're absolutely right. So, okay, so, so, so to, to get into that, and we got into that a little bit in the, the first episode of Series 2, private permission means that you and I can all sort of read from that blockchain, and I can find out that you have money to give me, but we can't actually do a transaction privately. It's got to go through one of these big companies that are going to be the equivalent of the miners, right? The permission part is the part that means you could be banished if you break some yeah. rules, or if they decide yeah. to change their terms of use. And has Facebook ever changed their terms of use? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, sure. All- yeah, all the time. I mean, like every couple of weeks, it yeah. seems. Yeah. Okay. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the line that folks have used to sort of walk Libra slowly, which is this line about money laundering and terrorist financing, because that's kind of where we got to a G20 this year. And I want to talk about what that may mean for Libra, but also what that's going to mean more generally for the currencies and the exchanges. Folks, I've just come back from Osaka where I chaired this meeting of the exchanges that were getting together so that they could figure out how to comply with a new set of regulations that have been recommended by a group called the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF. These are the, the, I guess you could call them almost the secret chiefs who direct the different national governments of the world to pass regulations that will prevent money laundering and terrorist financing that will keep the banned countries on the banned countries lists. 
And what I could see was that they were both moving very quickly. A lot of this had been inspired because the president of the FATF over the last year was an American and he made it his top priority to regulate cryptocurrencies. But it was also something that they'd been looking at for five years because it was taking them that long to get their heads around how we could do this right. So, Mark, you have a currency, the guard are you going to be affected by these new rules about how people trade? Can, because people could move guard over an international border easily through, through your app. Do you have to worry now that you're going to have to comply with a whole bunch of rules to make sure that you know your customers so that they can't send your currency to the wrong people in the wrong place? We are not because we provide a non-custodial wallet. So that's not covered by uh, what FATF is now proposing. Who they're going after are the centralized exchanges where uh, cryptocurrency goes to fiat and and back the other way, fiat to crypto. The decentralized exchanges like the upcoming Nash exchange, um, Switchio, a few of the other ones, they are also not covered. They have been blessed off and said, okay, you guys are okay. It's the centralized exchanges that are really bearing the brunt of the new regulation. This was something that was mentioned was by, by some of the people who were attending was that this this regulation covers a certain class of business and a certain class of exchanges. It doesn't cover, for instance, if you and I are exchanging cryptocurrency, and that would be across an international border because you're in right. America and I'm in that Australia. That would be the non-custodial wallets. Yeah, so, so, so in some sense, it doesn't stop us from moving that money around. But if I went to go to turn that currency, whether it was guard or something else, into Australian dollars, that's when I would have a conversation with the exchange about where they came from, right? So it's at some level, there's, there's, there's a moment there where the government gets a look in. Rob, do you think, given that we see this movement toward regulation and that the regulations are falling into place, can organizations like the U.S. government, like the Federal Reserve, like the President of the United States continue to hold this line that Libra is going to be used as a terrorist financing mechanism, given that the U.S. and all of these other countries are putting all of these rules in place to prevent exactly that? Well, I think there's a real risk. I mean, anytime you can move assets around the world anonymously – there's a risk that it's going to be used for money laundering and financing terrorism. Those are those are genuine risks. I think those are real concerns. Uh, I know people complain about it, and I know that you know Libra, the Libra Association has, or Facebook, I guess, has offered some kind of tepid nod in the direction of complying with regulation. Although it's very unclear how they plan to do that. Um, I think the, the concerns are very real. Um, so, I mean, look, we've been bashing the U.S. government, and frankly, we've been bashing Facebook a bit on this episode here. In fairness, I mean, look, you know, uh, financing terrorism is a real genuine concern. Uh, money laundering, a lot of people scoff at money laundering, but as the Panama Papers revealed, there are an awful lot of people around the world that are moving huge amounts of sums, uh, huge amounts of money, typically money that's ill-gotten from citizens of countries where they might be in the government, and they're moving it to faraway places where those citizens can't get their hands on it. So, you know, to the extent that these r- rules exist, Exist. I think they're well intended. I think they're there to solve real serious problems. Uh, I think the combination of the two, uh, money laundering to fund terrorism, is the really scary concept. And like everything digital, you know, the cost of running a terrorist regime um, and or operating a terrorist circle 
is dropping, right? And, and the, co- the transaction costs there are falling. So there's a real concern that the cryptocurrency becomes the preferred currency of, uh, of criminal, uh, criminal groups. That might be a smokescreen for governments flexing their muscle, elbowing aside private currency, con- exerting control over corporations, trying to manage crypto, you know, and, de- and re-centralizing this movement. You can, you can see it both ways, I do. I, in my view, the what the the terrorism specter that they're raising is is not real. Uh, today, dollars and gold are used to finance terrorists and are used for crimes of all sorts. And once you, if you regulate this properly and it's on a blockchain, the trackability of who moves what money from whom to where when uh, is incredible. It's much better than you get with cash and gold. So I think that's true. That's, you know, what, Dave, that's what David Marcus yeah, said in his testimony too. Yeah. It's actually the opposite. This helps. Cryptocurrency helps prevent terrorism. It really does. So, so you, you've touched on something that again came up at the V20 where we were looking at the FATF has the travel rule, which requires basically that if I'm going to send some crypto assets to you over in America, then, you know, you as the recipient have to give us a whole bunch of information about who you are. I as the sender have to provide a whole bunch of information about who I am, the KYC, know your customer. And People had pointed out that that's the way a bank has to do it because a bank is only a quasi-digital energy entity. But that when you did this with crypto, you could really just use an algorithm and the algorithm would be able to read the blockchain and be able to work out who went where what. And so in a sense, you could automate the travel rule. And when they framed it, these are some very smart people framing it. I realized that a lot of the arguments that have been made over the last decade about the anonymity that was given through cryptocurrencies, that there was this lovely anonymous way of being able to move things around. Maybe it was never really as true as people had said. Do we, I mean, are we actually getting to a point where we're starting to understand that, in fact, rather than providing us more anonymity in our transactions, that cryptocurrencies are actually providing a lot more trackability? Oh, very suspicious, Mark. Now you're starting to sound like those uh, those folks who believe that the CIA created Bitcoin in the first place. You know, you know it's, it's well, not... I think the NSA created it, not the CIA, but go on. It's, re- it's not really about anonymity, it's about pseudonym, pseudonyms, right? So you're not really anonymous. Um, and you're right, you can reverse engineer the transaction history. And some people have started to do that even with Bitcoin. And I think um, what's really weird about, this brings me right back to the topic of identity that I brought up a moment ago. On the one hand, all the financial institutions that are going to be handling uh, Libra are going to be required to do KYC. They're going to have to know who their customers are. And when you do KYC, you know, they get an awful lot of information. They get a photo of you with your passport, your birthday, and all that stuff. So there's a lot of identity that's that's there in that KYC process. Um, and it has to be government-issued identity. So it's rock solid. Um, on the flip side, we're told that this currency is going to be anonymous and that your data will be protected and it'll be somehow separated. <laughs> I mean, both things can't be true. And I know they're two separate organizations, but it isn't going to be difficult for law enforcement to issue a subpoena to both of them and get that information cobbled together. So I don't think it's a safe assumption that these are going to be anonymous transactions. As AI becomes more sophisticated, the more sophisticated AI is going to be able to look back in time on the blockchains, which are immutable and open to inspection by anyone at any time, and reverse engineer what happened when. Even if we can't do it now, in the future, it's very likely they'll be able to do it in the near future. I've been thinking that part of the reason to do a Libra in the first place and part of the reason for a MasterCard and a Visa to be involved in this is because they actually do want to have access to the transaction registry. 
quote unquote anonymous or not, just understanding where money is going and when it's going allows you to really work out why. And in fact, with probably not very much work, you can work out who because you can lay one database against another and figure out what was going on. So are we actually moving into a world where if we have a ubiquitous cryptocurrency, that our financial actions are as well known as our social actions are if we use a Facebook or a Twitter or an Instagram? Okay. So, <laughs> Rob's getting warmed up. Calibra is the subsidiary of Facebook that's going to build the wallet. They're the financial institution, and there's supposed to be a firewall between them and Facebook. So, Calibra is not supposed to share your transaction history or your identity back to Facebook. However, the wallet that Calibra produces is going to be integrated into Facebook, into Messenger, into Instagram, and frankly, everything that Facebook can possibly integrate it into. And here is the quote. This is uh, David Marcus' testimony to U.S. Congress. Calibra will not share customers' account information or financial data with Facebook unless people agree to permit such sharing. In other words, they're going to gamify it. They're going to give you an opt-in. Opt-in for points, opt-in for more Libra, opt-in for a discount. Now, here's a really scary thought. You know, the United States, at least, has been really clear on one topic since the Civil War, which is that there's a separation between banking and all other commercial activity, and they will not allow banks to own other kinds of enterprises. You know, so, for instance, a bank can't own a travel agency. And it's a real risk, right, because companies that use banking, all companies have to bank, when they give, when they submit, you know, let's say checks from customers to the bank, they're giving customer information over to the bank. It would be very difficult to compete with the bank once they had all that information with you. So for this, for this reason, or Congress, it's been tested several times since the Civil War, and every time the Congress has ruled very definitively, you can't be a bank and also be in another business. They separate those two things. Facebook is really seeking to weld your financial activity, your financial history, with your identity. One of the reasons for this is it'll be the ultimate sticky thing, right? It'll be the ultimate switching cost. If you've got a lot of Calibra, you've got your financial history, your wallet, all your stuff is in, in your Facebook account or your, you know, your Instagram account, it's going to be really tough to switch out to another social network. So that's great staying power for Facebook. But it should scare the hell out of us. I don't want Facebook to be my lender. I don't want Facebook to be my bank. I should be very concerned that a company that knows as much as Facebook knows about my identity, my friends, my transactions, the content I consume and share, the places that I go to, I should be very concerned that they also have my financial history and then can influence what I purchase. And remember, Facebook's goal, their stated objective, according to David Marcus, is they're doing this to increase their ability to do advertising. So one thing that's, that we haven't brought up yet, we're talking about Libra as if it exists in a vacuum in a certain way. When I said that Libra will be the AOL for cryptocurrency, that is how most humans on Earth will onboard into this world, use a wallet, do a crypto transaction for the first time. But it won't be the last thing they do or the last currency they use. From there, just like AOL, people graduated to Google and Yahoo and I forget what was available at the time, but you know all the other things that came afterwards. Uh, all the Libra users will graduate to Bitcoin and NEO and EOS and the other coins and the other things out there. And, you know, a, a lot of their transactional activity may, in fact, not take place in Libra. It may be in all these other currencies where most of the action is, and then they just convert it back to Libra and in and out. So, Why, why do you think that's the case? Because I, I arrive at a different conclusion. 
I, well, because I, I believe that people, because Libra is is kind of useless as it is, right? <laughs> it's a stable coin, which is great, and you need that, but that's like the foundational basic level. Yeah. It's not the advanced stuff, right? Right. And so I, I think people will graduate to other things. Okay, so so your premise is this is the gateway to digital currency. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking that one of the reasons you know, the Trojan horse that Facebook has pushed into the U.S. Congress is they're saying, regulate us so that there can be a legitimate, uh, government-legitimized digital currency, a global digital currency that these various governments that are in the basket of currencies uh, that peg it, that they have blessed and somehow, and they've blessed it with regulation. And I see that as a very clear attempt to delegitimize all digital currencies that don't have the exact same regulatory oversight. Well, the thing is, is that what we now know from V20 is that because the exchanges are getting regulated, those currencies will have some degree of oversight baked into them. But I want to sort of extend what both of you are talking about. There's this very old idea from the 19th century of a company script and a company store. And this is the, the interesting thing, I think, about when Facebook's going to be offering employees the, the ability to be paid in Libra. And this is idea that, you know, you were working in a company town, it might be a mining town somewhere in the American West, and you'd be paid in company script, so they'd be quote-unquote dollars, but they wouldn't really be because they'd be paid in company script, and they could only be redeemed at the company store where you were paying inflated prices for goods that were sold to you by the company. And so it formed a closed-loop ecosystem that allowed employers to really fleece employees of most of their earnings because they controlled the entire currency and economic cycle around their earning. And this to me seems like even if it's not an intentional design of Libra, it seems to me like that's going to become a de facto outcome, not everywhere, but at least in some places because we've got all of the pieces in place for that. So how do we prevent that? Well, Libra is tethered to a basket of currencies, right? That's how it's prevented. Libra is just a better version of Tether in, in most ways. It's not, it's not a Bitcoin competitor. It's a better Tether. So, you know, if the script, was, the script was not tied to the dollar, which is why you could play all kinds of games with it. So I think, Libra, I think Libra has already solved that. Where we get into trouble potentially is like Tether. <laughs> Tether said that they had $1 in the bank for every Tether that was issued. And that was true in the beginning. But as it grew, Tether succumbed to the temptation to start, you know, not backing everything with a real dollar. And it's become a problem now. So will Facebook and Libra succumb to that same temptation? Don't know, but it, it seems like everybody does somewhere along the line that tries something like this. And, and it's and it's not just Tether, right? This is every financial institution that's gotten into trouble in history has played musical chairs with its assets. This is a real problem. And so, uh, for, rightly, that's one of the things the regulators are, are looking at. It's one of the things Congress is asking about. They want to make sure, they want to understand better what's in that basket of currencies and where will those things be managed and where will they be placed. Uh, you know, the Libra Association has published some information about how it's going to be you know, a conservative set of assets that don't generate tremendous amount of interest. It is interesting that the Libra Association is going to use the interest. It doesn't go back to the people who deposit it there. They're going to use that interest as um, oh, really? first to cover their cost, and then <laughs> after they cover their cost, they're going to. Uh, that's going to be their reward for putting in their ten million dollar investment each. You know, the first mm. hundred partners in. Uh, so they're actually going to get the interest back out of the system. But Mark, I want to build on something that you and Mark Pesci said a moment ago. Let's imagine a world right now. We're looking at this from the lens of. Most of us don't spend most of our time or most of our transactions 
uh, with digital currency, right? Today, most people don't. We, some people have some digital currency, but it's not that useful for most transactions. And that's partly because it's incredibly volatile. So the whole point here is to get a, a, a new digital currency that is stable, uh, that's not volatile. Okay, now that's interesting. Um, I started wondering how much of my transactions are done digitally. And as I started thinking through, you know, almost all my bills are paid with like bill pay. So that could certainly be done with Libra. Uh, I do most of my shopping without, with the exception of groceries, I do most of my shopping on the internet. And so I could certainly do that with Libra. And now this gets to be really interesting when you consider like how much you're, what you're spending on a monthly basis, would you spend with Libra if it were that easy and that stable to use? Okay. So here in the United States, we've got the world's reserve currency, US dollar, it doesn't fluctuate that much on a day-to-day basis, but they're not going after Americans, right? They're not going after Australians. They're going after the global unbanked. Here we have currencies that fluctuate like mad. And so if most of your transactions are being done with Libra in the digital domain, this actually can destabilize a country, a nation's ability to manage monetary policy. Because if you can start, if you see people start to like convert their local currency into Libra and they find that like the fluctuating local currency isn't, it's such a pain in the ass. It's a bit like Bitcoin is today. It's a pain in the, it's a pain in the butt to use. Uh, you're going to end up doing even more of your transactions mm-hmm. in Libra. Now, great for the people that got into Libra. Now you can start to see why, you know, organizations like Visa and MasterCard, they're going, oh, fabulous. We want to be, a, we want a piece of this action. We want a piece of this ever-growing pie. But you can also see why certain governments should be very concerned. And the governments I'm referring to are not the U.S., Switzerland, U.K., or any European Venezuela. nation. Venezuela. Yes, exactly. It's governments where the currencies fluctuate wildly because Libra will look like a better alternative and it'll thereby siphon money out of their systems. And perhaps the most obvious candidate for Libra, India, has just proposed fines and jail time for using cryptocurrency. And I suspect that those laws have been advanced through the Indian government at light speed precisely because of Libra. All right, gentlemen, it is time to ask you both for a prediction. Take a look at your crystal balls. Give me your best prediction for Libra over the next six months. Hmm. I th- I think it launches, but it launches not in the United States. They'll launch it somewhere else and on a small scale. But I think there's no scenario under which they just kill it. I think it launches, and I think it, uh, I don't know about the United States, interesting speculation, but my perspective is it will launch, and I think that there'll be many other digital currencies that follow in its wake, and you'll see intense competition, and what that competition will do is force innovation, and it'll also reveal just how slow traditional governments operate and how ill-equipped they are to deal with the pace of digital change, and we're going to start to see this, I think, as one of the first major blows against traditional democratic governments caused by digital disruption. Really what we're looking at is a smash and grab against governance. I think one of the other FANG companies will also announce their own cryptocurrency. Not Netflix, but one of the other ones. (laughs) Gentlemen, Mark, Rob, thank you for your unique and your keen and your piercing insights on this episode of Cryptonomics. Thank you for having us. It's fun to be here, as always. Alongside all of this work, regulating cryptocurrencies, figuring out what's happening to Libra, remapping the central banking system, there has been a parallel explosion in ways to pay for things. So payments are the topic of the next episode of Cryptonomics. 
Big thanks to Mark Jeffrey and Rob Tersick for being our brain trust. If you want to learn more about Libra or Colibra, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. The next billion seconds cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the Podcast One Australia app, or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.